Okay, uh, it was two weeks ago uh, that I preached from Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, uh, verse number three, and so that was kind of part one, and we're moving to part number two uh, today. Uh, but to get you caught up a little bit, perhaps you weren't here those two weeks ago, um, or have forgotten. Hopefully, it, hasn't, it wasn't the forgotten part, but maybe you weren't here. Um, we are really uh, looking at this passage, which is trying to draw our attention to considering Christ. I think that's, uh, that's my single purpose in preaching this passage. I think that's Isaiah's purpose, is he wants us to consider Christ. So we said in, in this passage, there are ten marvels of Jesus Christ. Uh, we looked uh, last time that Jesus will be exalted, the suffering servant. He will be exalted, and yet he'll be astonishing. Um, that was verses 13 through 15. And then in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53, we saw that the suffering servant, who is Jesus the Messiah, he will be present with his people, and yet he'll be rejected by his people. So today I want to uh, move to the, the final group of, of truths. Um, we're going to see that, that the suffering servant will be the punished, yet we are the guilty. We'll also see that he will suffer to death and yet be innocent. And lastly, um, this song of Isaiah's will crescendo in praise to say that this suffering servant will be crushed and yet he'll be victorious. All right? Um, we started last time by saying that we want to consider Christ for a host of reasons. He's worth knowing um, because of who he is. We naturally long to know him because of who we are as Christian people. Uh, knowing this Christ is eternal life. Uh, knowing Christ informs our suffering, and it shows us the way to joy. And, and considering Christ is crucial for us today because this Christ is the Savior. And what we're going to see in, in the verses that we look at together uh, this morning uh, is that the, the heart of this song in Isaiah 53 are going to focus specifically on the suffering of Jesus in our place. It's going to focus specifically on the act of his dying. So uh, last time, you can kind of look at Isaiah 52, 13, 14, and 15 as kind of an introduction to there is a suffering servant and he'll be great. And it starts out with this exaltation. But, but then verses 1 through 3 in Isaiah 53, uh, they, they bring us kind of through Jesus' life. We see a picture of his life as he grows up and yet he's rejected and, and people don't appreciate him. But now as we move into verses 4, 5, and 6, we're going to start to f- focus more specifically on on Christ as the suffering servant. And so the first thing we're going to see this morning from uh, verses 4 through 6 is that this suffering servant will be the punished, and yet we are the guilty. All right, look what it says in verse number 4. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. All right, it's... We already saw in verse number three that that this servant would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse four tells us something that we didn't know in verse number three. It tells us that those griefs and sorrows that that he bore, uh, they weren't his own. They were actually ours. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. And and Matthew refers to this passage in Isaiah specifically um, in a really interesting moment. It happens... um, when Jesus goes to, to Peter's house and, and he sees Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, right? Um, side note, Peter's married, right? It's hard to have a mother-in-law without, without having, a, having a wife. So anyway, he enters Peter's house. He sees his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And so Jesus touches her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. This is Matthew eight seventeen. 
And it says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And then listen to what, what Matthew, under inspiration, says we should take away from this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The, the miracle-working ministry of Jesus to heal the sick um, that, that he did in so many places, um, it, it is a fulfillment of him bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. Because Jesus didn't stand aloof and apart from the sickness and the brokenness of this world. Instead, he, he entered into it and he took it on himself. Right? So Jesus, again, is constantly surrounded by sick and hurting and dying and suffering people. And he, he bears that on himself. It's interesting, there are, there are even cases when Jesus does a miracle. For instance, the, the woman who um, had an issue of blood and she could never be healed and, and she kind of snuck up on Jesus and grabbed the end of, his, end of his robe. I don't know if you remember that story. And she's instantly healed. And that passage tells us something really interesting. It says that Jesus didn't know who touched him, but he felt that power went out of him. I don't know if you've ever considered that when Jesus was doing miracles, he was actually exercising power. And, and the miracles and the work that he was doing as the God-man, yes, he's God, and, and, and so he, he has that ability. But as, as man, the miracles and the work that Jesus did were taxing on him, right? It, it, it cost Jesus something to go from place to place and heal so many countless people. Power was constantly going out of him. He was constantly doing outlandish things like reaching out and touching people with leprosy. He was, he was in contact all the time with unclean people. He was taking our griefs and our sorrows. And he was doing that in a, in a physical sense, and, and yet the greatest sense of him bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows happens most plainly for us at the cross, right? And Isaiah is going to focus our attention there as well. But when, when we think, when we consider who our Christ is, then we need to consider that that he was someone who was actually going to be the punished while we were the guilty. Because look what happens in verse 4. He says, he's been bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This is now the second time that there's been a bad estimation, right? Uh, the first one was in verse 3. It says, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We said last time, we, we estimated him as nothing. We looked at the value of Jesus and we said it adds up to a zero. That was the first bad estimation. But, but verse number four gets even worse because no longer is it just looking at Jesus and saying he doesn't have any value. And verse number four, we find out that while he was bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows, we looked at him and we didn't say he's not just a zero. We actually said that's a man under the curse of God. That is somebody who God is judging. And that's why he's going through this suffering. That's why he's going through this grief. It says we esteemed him stricken. He's smitten by God and afflicted in and, and the mean, it means we thought he was stricken and smitten by God because of his own sin, because of something that he had done wrong. That was our estimation. That was the Jewish estimation. And that's the estimation of every unbelieving heart, that, that Jesus is someone, if he was even real, he suffered only, only for his own fault. All right? That's how we viewed him. We viewed him. He, he's the punished one. He's the guilty one. And that was the estimation. In reality, though, Jesus is suffering for an entirely different reason than God judging him for his own evil. And that's what verse number 5 helps us see. Because far from Jesus suffering for his own evil, verse 5 says, But, 
In contrast, in reality, why was he carrying griefs? Why was he bearing griefs and carrying sorrows? Where did it come from? Well, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Notice that there's a pair of of reasons and results in in this verse, all right? Um, Ask ask yourself the question, why why was he pierced? What was the cause of Jesus being pierced? Because the cause in the Jewish mind and, and in an unbelieving mind is he's pierced for something that he's done, but that's not what it says, right? Why is he, why is he pierced? He's pierced for our transgressions, for our own sins is why he's pierced. Why is he crushed? Not for anything that he's done. He's crushed for our iniquities. So it's our transgressions that cause him to be pierced. It's our iniquities that cause him to be crushed. And those are such strong and vivid words. And, and don't run away from that. Consider When we consider Christ, you are considering a servant who was pierced. He was pierced. And it says he was crushed. This is strong language. And, and, and this was because of things like transgression and iniquity. Also, strong terms. Even terms that maybe we don't necessarily like to hear. We don't like to think about what we do as transgression, as as walking across the line. And that's what our sin was. It was trespassing. Iniquities, that that word refers to the guilt of what we've done. It's not just sin, it's it's iniquity. That's That's a judgmental word on our actions, on our attitudes, on our beliefs. It's it says that apart from Christ, these things are they're iniquities, they're wrong. And that's why the suffering servant is pierced and crushed. But, but notice, while, while he's really the, the, the punished one, we're the ones that are guilty. It's our transgressions. It's, it's our iniquities. And, and then, so that's, that's why he's suffering. That's, that's, the, that's the cause. But look at what the result is. So pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, and, and on him comes chastisement. But look what, look what this chastisement, that's word for punishment, what does this punishment mean? bring. What is the result of the punishment? The result of the punishment is peace. And it says, with his wounds, we are healed. And I think I know, again, Isaiah 53 is one of those passages that maybe we're super familiar with, and, and we're, we use kind of, you know, our, our Christian jargon about, about, yeah, we're used to these words, by his wounds, we're healed. But have you, have you stopped and really meditated on that? How is somebody healed by wounds? That, that's, that's not how we normally think about, that's not where healing comes from. Healing doesn't come from, from wounding. Those things are opposites, typically, in our mind. Punishment, how is punishment connected to peace? The, those things are different, right? Chastisement is the opposite of peace. Wounds are the opposite of healing. And yet, and yet the reality is this is at the heart of the gospel, the good news about Jesus is that there has to be somebody who will be punished so that the rest of us can have peace with God. There have to be wounds for Jesus so there can be healing for you and healing for me. And that's why this passage so beautifully puts the gospel on display in an Old Testament foretelling sense. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is always how God has worked. Always. In the Old Testament or in the New, there must always be payment for sin. 
as part of the gospel message that we believe and must embrace is when we consider Christ, we have to consider him being wounded so that we can be healed. That exchange has to happen or there's no good news. These are the great paradoxes of the gospel. Wounds bring healing. Bloodshed cleanses us. Bloodshed makes us white, whiter than snow. And so he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And, and Isaiah wants to push the point home that, that Jesus was the punished, but we are the guilty because look at verse number six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That is, in, that is an indictment on us, that we have gone our own way. Isaiah uses this expression four times in his book, and it's never good for people to go their own way. In Isaiah 56, Isaiah is talking about the leaders of Israel, and he calls them shepherds, and they're evil shepherds. And he says, the evil shepherds go their own way, abusing the sheep for their own good. In chapter 57, Isaiah describes a man who is backsliding as backsliding in the way of his own heart. When Isaiah says we've gone our own way, uh, this is not congratulatory. This is condemning that we have gone our own way. In Isaiah 65, uh, verses 1 through 3, listen, this is God speaking. And listen to what God says in Isaiah 65, 1 through 3. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. That's this, following their own way. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. And he goes on to describe the idolatry of people going their own way. This is a message that's not just from Isaiah. Uh, you, can, you can read this in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Interesting thing about that proverb, it's one of the only proverbs that is repeated verbatim. Proverbs 14.12 and then Proverbs 16.25 says that exact same thing. It's the exact same proverb, just repeated twice. There's a way that seems right to a man, but, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. I think that, that Isaiah wants to stop us on our tracks, and we probably especially need to hear this message about going our own way because we live in a day um, where there's a very popular message that says things like, just trust your own heart. To your own self be true, right? Uh, just, just believe in yourself. And you can achieve whatever. And in a day of motivational speakers and everything else, it, is, it has gone beyond just um, have an optimistic look. Um, and, and it's gone beyond just in the sports world, um, you know, visualize and, and try to achieve it. It's actually become a, a way of looking at life. Because I believe in, in my own way, then I can have it. All right? It's, it's not a bad thing to go to Burger King and have it your own way. It is a bad thing when your own way is you pursuing life apart from God and making life work um, from, from your own vantage point and from your own perspective. There was a, a 
famous Hindu leader. His name was Swami Vivekananda. He's actually credited as bringing Hinduism to the forefront, uh, kind of the end of the 19th century. He came to America. There was a World Council of Religions, and he did um, one of the speeches there. Um, one of his sayings was, you cannot believe in God until you believe in yourself, right? Because of the Hindu perspective of self and God within us. And, and believe in yourself. Look, look deep inside yourself. Um, that great classic modern country theologian Martina McBride uh, says, you have to have faith that there is a plan for you. And you're like, well, okay. And you must follow your heart and believe in yourself no matter what. Right? No matter where you go, whether you go into religion or whether you go into pop music, you're going to hear the message, believe in yourself. Um, follow your own dreams. Make your dreams come true. And Isaiah cannot be any plainer. Don't follow your own way. Your way will lead you to death and ruin. You need to find God's way and follow his, not your own. No matter how convinced we are that our own way is right, what we have to be um, sure of is, is my way God's way. No matter how sincerely held our beliefs are, our perspectives are, if they're not grounded in the word of God, then they lead to death. If, uh, if you're a, a football fan, uh, NFL football fan, then you're familiar with the story uh, of Jim Marshall, uh, even though it was October 25th, 1964. You're especially probably familiar with the story uh, if you're a, a 49er fan. Uh, because in, in a game in 1964, Jim Marshall, um, he was a defensive player, and he recovered a fumble. And remarkably, as a defensive player, he managed to rumble 66 yards into the end zone which was fantastic uh, as, he, as he ended up in the San Francisco 49er end zone, except that he was a Viking. He had, Jim Marshall had gone 66 yards the wrong way. And, and even though coaches were yelling from the sidelines and even other players were yelling, he was convinced in what he was doing. See, you can be convinced in what you're doing and still be wrong. Uh, He was so convinced that in in an interview later, uh, this is what he said, which I thought was funny. uh, My first inkling that something was wrong was when a 49er player gave me a hug in the end zone. (laughs) Right? I mean, he he had no clue that he was going the wrong way. He was ecstatic, right? And yet, how many many of us could could fit in, in that kind of illustration of we're convinced in the way we're going? And we're pursuing it with passion and with reckless abandon, and nothing will stand in our way. And the world would say, kudos to you. You're pursuing your way. When the reality is that your way can be leading the wrong way. Because look at what pursuing our own way did. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And what did it lead to? It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. Going our own way has led to the suffering servant being saddled with our sin. That's where going our own way went. It has led to, there's that word again, iniquity. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the going your own wayness of us all. You see, here is Jesus and, and the suffering servant, and he'll be punished, but in reality, we are the ones who are guilty. That's verses 4 to 6, but it's not just that he will be the punished while we're the guilty. We're going to see in verses 7 through 9, he will suffer all the way to death and yet be innocent. Look at verse number 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter 
And like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It says that this suffering servant, he would suffer all the way to the point of death. It says he was oppressed. That's, that's a word for injustice being done to somebody. Oppressed is this word that stresses injustice. He was oppressed by people like Pilate. He was oppressed by people like Herod. By Jewish leaders like Annas and Caiaphas. Jesus was oppressed. He was, he was dealt with unjustly. He was, he was given um, unfair and illegal trials um, before his crucifixion. He was, he was counted as a criminal, the ultimate injustice. He was oppressed and he was afflicted in, in his trials and in his suffering. It, it wasn't just that, that they said he was a criminal. They subjugated him to, to the worst kinds of violence imaginable as he suffered through the, the scourging, the, the flogging, the beating, the mockery, the, the nails, the, the thorns on that crown on his head. He was afflicted. And, and, and what did he do while he was being oppressed? What did he do while he was being afflicted? See, when, we're, when we are oppressed, when someone deals with us unjustly, uh, we cry out against that, right? This is something that is just natural born in humanity. Uh, it happens, you see it in your kids. If your kids feel that you have done them an injustice, you will hear no end of it. It doesn't matter if there was just the injustice of I got the smaller piece of the cake, uh, but I was, something happened that was unjust, and so now I'm going to complain about it. And, and yet, Jesus is not that way because he's oppressed and afflicted, and yet what happens is he opens not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. You see, while all of us are like sheep going astray, uh, Jesus is like a lamb to the slaughter. The, the kind of the, the irony is that, is that Jesus would give his life for the sheep who would turn out to be his murderers. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 23, uh, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Right? That's, that's what Isaiah is saying. This suffering servant would be someone who would be oppressed and yet wouldn't open his mouth, wouldn't, wouldn't return reviling for reviling, wouldn't return an insult for an insult. It says when he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus could have threatened, right? Think about the garden and, and his disciples are upset and, and Peter's getting out his sword and Jesus says, if I wanted to, I could have called legions of angels. I could have threatened you with a heavenly army and yet Jesus doesn't threaten. It says what he was doing was he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The suffering servant has a perspective beyond the the suffering in the moment to a God who is doing the right thing. And so because of that, he's like a sheep that is silent, and so he's opening not his mouth. And, And yet what happens is he suffers all the way to death, verse number eight, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, in other words, the people who were alive during this suffering servant's time, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Right? That word cut off is, is a strong word, it, and it's referring to his death. Uh, Genesis 9.11 refers to this cut off, and, and it's God speaking. It says, I'll establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Right? Genesis 9 is when? Right after the flood has happened. This is God talking to Noah. And he says what happened in the flood is that humanity got cut off. 
Life got cut off. And now we see the suffering servant who is cut off from the land of the living. There's living over here, and then the suffering servant, he gets sent over here. This is talking about the death of this servant. And yet who considered that, that he was cut off for the transgression of my people, Isaiah says. Isaiah puts himself in this situation. He says, it's my people. But who even considered that he was cut off because of our sin, that he was killed? See, he's going to suffer to death, yet the reality is that he's not suffering because of his own sin, but because of the transgression of my people. Verse number 9 tells us, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. A lot of argument over, over this verse, but what we can't escape is that it says they made his grave. We're, again, we're talking about death here. They made his grave with who? With the wicked with the wicked. Again, the death of Christ and and the estimation of him is that he fits in the wicked category. He fits in the criminal. He fits in the outcast. As you consider Christ, then consider that in the moment of his saving work, he was counted as the greatest sinner. He was counted as a criminal. And so he makes his grave with the wicked. And yet something else happens in this burial that hints, it hints at a different reality. It says he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. I think that's, that's referring to Joseph of Arimathea who would, as a wealthy man, give up his own new tomb. A man with a lot of money and yet convinced that Jesus is who he said he was, who believed in Jesus, who even had the audacity to go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. He makes his grave with a wicked and with a rich man in his death. And even though he's dead, the reality is that he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah is trying to help over and over again beat this drum. He's dead, he suffered to death, and yet he didn't do anything wrong. As you consider Christ, consider that he is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Yes, he went quiet like a lamb to the slaughter, but Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of those Old Testament sacrifices where, where those Old Testament lambs had to be perfect in every way. And yet John the Baptist was entirely right when he saw Jesus walking and he pointed at him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Has he taken away your sin? He was suffering to death, and yet he was innocent. But thankfully, Isaiah doesn't leave us here. Because he's going to finish the song on a note of triumph, and there's one final contrast that reveals another marvel about our Christ. He will be crushed and yet victorious. He's going to be crushed, and yet he'll be victorious. Look at verse number 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. We should never think that what happened to Jesus was somehow out of God's control uh, or that Jesus was somehow uh, an unfortunate martyr. Or what, what happened to Jesus was entirely God's will and it was entirely God's plan. It says it was the will of the Lord And what language? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the perfect will of a holy, sinless father to crush 
his own son. This wasn't happenstance. This was the plan of God since before there was a world created. Acts 2, 22 to 23, in one of the first Christian sermons ever, as Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he starts this way, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The suffering of this servant was entirely within God's plan. And it was the only plan, and it was the best plan to deal with our sin problem. The iniquity, the transgression that Isaiah has been talking about, that transgression that is mine and that is yours, the way to deal with it was to have a Christ who would be crushed by his own father. He was the one who put him to grief. When you think about this servant as a man who is acquainted with grief, who is bearing our griefs, ultimately it is the father is the one who has put him to grief. Why? Why has he done this? Why did this have to happen? What is the, what is the purpose in this? Is, is God the father some kind of vindictive, mean-spirited, abusive father? Is that what's going on here? Isaiah says, no, look what he will do. In verse number 10, when his soul, that's the soul of the suffering servant, when he makes an offering for guilt, then he, that is God, will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in the suffering servant's hand. See, the humiliation of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, was all within God's perfect plan so that God's will would prosper. God is a God who delights in justice and in resurrection. And so we're going to see Isaiah finish this song by saying, yes, he's crushed, but that crushing, he is still victorious. In verse number 11, he says, out of the anguish of his soul, out of the anguish of the suffering servant's soul, God the Father will see and be satisfied. Isn't isn't that blessed news for you this morning? It is if you understand that it's your iniquities and your sin that should have been punished. If the chastisement that Jesus endured should have been yours. Because the reality is that God is now satisfied. The wrath of a holy, perfect judge is completely satisfied. He has no more wrath for you if you are in Christ this morning. Justice has been met entirely and perfectly. You don't have to pay for a single bit of your sin. There isn't anything hanging over that you have, to, you have to take care of the rest of that debt because God will see the anguish, the incredible agony of this servant who suffered grief and affliction and he will see that anguish and he will be entirely satisfied. When you consider Christ, you are considering a sacrifice who completely appeased the wrath of God. There is no more for you if you are in Christ. He will see this anguish, and God the Father will be satisfied. By his knowledge, verse 11 says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. When it says, by his knowledge, by the knowledge of the suffering servant, the righteous one will make many righteous. 
Okay? That's John 17, verse 3. This is life eternal. So know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you set. By the knowledge of Jesus Christ, by knowing him truly, which includes submitting to him and believing in him and relating to him, that will make many to be accounted righteous. And that's you this morning if you are in Christ. Accounted righteous. There it is in in the full sense of that New Testament word of justification. When you are accounted righteous, that means God looks at your account. He looks at my account. And when he looks, he he doesn't go, yes, terrible, terrible temper. Uh, And then there was that time that you did X. And then there was that thievery in it. He doesn't look and list out all of your sins when he looks at you. Whatever it is, and there is a variety of sin and iniquity represented in this room this morning. But if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't look and list out your sin. He says, you're a righteous one. You, you are right in my sight. You are, you are sinless this morning from my perspective. Not because you are perfect, but because Christ is and he has taken your place. Knowing Christ leads to many being accounted righteous and him bearing their iniquities. Listen, if it sounds too too harsh, if it sounds too much to, to look at Jesus as being crushed and suffering all of these things, we have got to connect not just the crushing, but we've got to connect that what he was doing was bearing our iniquities. It had to happen so that our iniquities would be punished. Because without Jesus being crushed, the only other solution is for you or for me to be crushed. That's it. Only two solutions. Either you'll be crushed for your sin or he will be. And what Jesus was doing was bearing our iniquities. He was taking them for us. He was putting himself in our place. This is good news for us. And it is because of this, verse number 12 says, verse 12 starts out with a therefore, right? It's because of these realities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, he will be crushed and yet he will be victorious because Jesus will be showered with rich blessing because of his suffering. Verse 12 is describing him like a conquering war hero who takes all the spoil that he deserves. He will divide him a portion with the many. It's, it's referring to after a battle was done and, and people would be given different spoils, right? Jesus will be given a portion with the many and he will divide the spoil with the strong. This is a picture of Jesus as conquering victor. This is, this is the general who wins and then comes back, to, comes back and is greeted with a parade and with people cheering and he's the victor and, and that's Christ. Yes, he's crushed, but, but he will conquer and he will reign victorious. And, and notice that verse number 12 is, is going to line out why it is that he is victorious and why it is that he's great. Notice what it says. Why, why, why should he be exalted? We started chapter 52, verse 13, with him being exalted. Why is he exalted at the end of 53? Notice God's reasons for exaltation. Because what did he do? He poured out his soul to death. 
That's a reason that Jesus should be highly exalted because he poured out his soul all the way to death. Secondly, he was wrongfully accused and misidentified as a sinner. So he should be exalted because here he was numbered with the transgressors, and yet that was the wrong label. And God will set all things right, including the injustice done to his son. He should be exalted because he was numbered with the transgressors even though he wasn't one of them. He should be exalted because he bore the sin of many. That is a reason for our Christ to be exalted because he took the sins of humanity on himself. This is why he gets the praise he does like in the book of Revelation with people from every tribe and tongue and nation say, you are worthy is the lamb. Why? Because you have redeemed for yourself a people from every tribe and nation. Because you have sacrificed yourself for them. That's why he should be exalted. He should be exalted because he makes intercession for the transgressors. Did you notice that? It shifts into a present. And that's a, that's a blessed thing. It doesn't just say he made intercession for the transgressors. That would be great. But it says more than that. This, the end of Isaiah 53 says more than Jesus did something in the past. It says Jesus right now is doing something for you and for me. He is making right now intercession for us, the transgressors. The reason Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost is because he ever lives to make intercession for us. So the concept of being eternally secure is necessary because of how great Christ is. If you have a Christ who is currently making intercession for you, then you can be sure that nothing can take your salvation away from you. Because right now, he is making intercession for you, the transgressor. These are all reasons for Christ to be highly exalted, crushed and yet victorious. So Isaiah wants us to see the the marvel of our Christ. He's exalted and yet astonishing. He's present with his people, yet rejected by his people. He is the one who is punished while we are the ones who are guilty. He will suffer to death, and yet he is innocent. He will be crushed, and yet he is victorious. This is our great Christ. And so, as we conclude today, what what should we do with this message from Isaiah? I want to ask yourself, everybody here, I want to ask you one particular question, the most important of questions. I want you to ask yourself the question this morning, while you sit here right now, I want you to ask yourself the question, Has he taken my sins? Has he taken your sins? Because Isaiah leads us with no doubt that humanity is marked by things like iniquity and sin and going our own way. The question is not, do you have sin? Yes, you do. Yes, we all do. All of us have sinned. The question this morning is, has he taken your sin for you? It's possible that there are some people in here and the right answer to that question, if you were to be honest with yourself and honest with God this morning, the right answer would be no. He has not taken my sins because I don't believe in him. I, I don't trust in him. I, I, ca- I can't get my head around this idea that someone had to suffer for me. I, that's it's, there's got to be more to it, maybe you say to yourself. Maybe you say, there, there's got to be something that I can do. I'm glad Jesus suffered, but I, there's got to be more things I could do. There, there's got to be some church attendance I can do. There, there's, 
There's got to be some kind of religious ritual that I can do. There's got to be a baptism I can hold on to besides just Jesus. You might be clinging to any number of other things besides just Jesus. What, What Isaiah is pleading with you this morning and what I am pleading with you this morning is trust Jesus alone. Has he taken your sins? Not have you been good enough to outweigh your sins or, uh, or, or maybe all your sins are just a figment of your imagination. No, you have sins. And the question is, has he taken them? And I pray that many in here would be able to say, has he taken my sins? And you'd be able to say, yes. Yes, with all my heart, I believe that he has taken my sins. He has stood in my place. Well, then for you today, there can be a variety of applications from this message. If he has taken your sins, then you should worship and treasure and obey this wonderful Christ. If he has has put himself in your place, then why would you not love him and live for him? If he has put himself in his place and if he has suffered for you, um, then put your trust in him. And, and even for you as, as Christian people, can, can I encourage you, trust, trust Jesus and Jesus alone. I think it's possible for us, even um, as Christian people, because we, we care about, um, we know by your fruit, you'll, you'll know them. We care about fruit. We care about, I want to see, see the results of, of the gospel in my life. And yet it's so easy for us to twist that. And all of a sudden we put our trust in, I, I don't tell as many lies as I used to. And, and my confidence in is I'm, I'm a better person than, than I used to be. Look, all those things are vain places to put your confidence when it comes to your eternal salvation. Your confidence needs to be in a person, not, not in a work that you do, not, not in an attitude you feel right now and may not feel tomorrow, not in, not in an emotion, but in a person. Put your trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone because he suffered for you. Your obedience is just a sign of what has already happened in your heart. It's not your hope. So put your hope in Christ and in Christ alone today. Whether you are not a Christian right now, that message is for you. Put your hope in Christ and in Christ alone to deal with your sins. And if you are a believer, do the same. Christ is your hope this morning and not anything else. I have one Final application for you this morning. If, this, if all these things are true about considering our Christ, then what we should want to do is celebrate the Lord's Supper together.